Hey there, listeners. How you doing? If you're thinking that my voice sounds extra great right now, you're not wrong. We used the last few weeks to revamp the acoustics of our podcast closet, take in some additional audio tips from Big Mucho, and make your experience of hearing this show even sexier. But that's just the smallest hint of the work we're putting in right now. Mostly, we're neck deep in our next major topic, Secret Societies. We're pretty far into the scripting process for the first half of this series, but while we are going to make you wait for new content for a couple more months, we're going to keep you entertained in the meantime with an archive experience based on one of our classic episodes, Reality Show Part 1, originally put out in full-length form in 2019. If you're newer to the show, this one was kind of a departure from our regular fare. The idea was, if we're going to set ourselves up as the defenders of the idea of consensus reality, we owe it to our audience to do an honest explication of exactly how little we as 21st century humans even know about that thing that we call reality when you really get down to it. Over the next seven weeks, we're putting this episode back out in short, quickly digestible chunks, with some new intro material. And with each segment, we'll also be promoting one of our sister podcasts on the That's Not Canon Network. This time, we'd like to clue you in to the We Don't Talk About That podcast with Lucas Land. The idea behind this show is that our host interviews people who are willing to be frank about subjects others typically find difficult or awkward to talk about. Mr. Land handles those topics without any standoffishness or arm's-length distancing, leading to some interesting conversations. In one example y'all might want to explore, episode 42 finds our hero interviewing another Conspiracy Theory podcast host, Derek DeWitt of Conspiracy Clearinghouse, about his background, motivations, and interest regarding the same sorts of topics that we like to cover. Give it a listen. Link is, of course, in the show notes. In the meantime, though, please enjoy the opening section of our reality show part one, and we'll see you with another archive episode next week. As you know, I'm your arch and approachable, fashionable yet relatable, likable yet super snarky host, Sibling Jesuit, and we're here to spill the tea on all the wacky antics those crazy characters have been getting up to on your favorite show, Reality. Before we get started, I want to give you a standard disclaimer. We are not talking housewives or B-list celebrities playing psychological power games while guzzling leaders of rosé. This show isn't about reality TV, it's about reality. Like the physical world. Things as they actually exist, not the way we want to see them. What was it Philip K. Dick said? Oh yeah, that reality is the thing which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. So anyway, we know you want to see some sparks fly, so let's bring in our first guests, philosophers George Barclay and David Hume. Thanks for coming in. Now George... I hear you want to share something about the world with us. I do indeed. You see, because we're just minds, and we perceive only through our senses, we can only conclude that consciousness is the basis of all existence, and that the universe is created and sustained by the ultimate consciousness. God. But David, you've got some different ideas. Indeed I do. This wee bishop is right about the unknowability of the world outside our minds. But that includes his precious God. It's just minds and ideas. 
No need for deity. You bitch. Philosophers, please. Security. Thank you. Okay. But to calm ourselves down, can we hear from the science community? Welcome our next guests, Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr. Niels, I understand that you and Al have been hashing out some disagreements lately. Yes, yes. Albert is a lovely man and a wonderful physicist. But he can't seem to accept the fact that at the smallest measurable levels, reality doesn't follow the elegant rules of his theory of relativity but instead is simply a swarm of possibilities, with nothing fixed or determined. Damn it! God does not play dice with the universe! Albert, we agreed not to fight on TV. Ach, Gott in Himmel! Okay. Looks like we're not going to solve anything here. In fact, as it turns out, the more closely we look at reality, the more it appears to be an illusion. Or is it a conspiracy? All I know is, it's probably going to make for a strange edition of the Paranoid Strain. Gentlemen and Straniacs, there is nothing wrong with your devices. Do not attempt to adjust your smartphone app. We are controlling the transmission. We may not control the vertical. We may not control the horizontal. But damn it, we control the volume. We control the timbre. The pitch. And the speed. You are traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. And, well, no, not really the other two, just sound. Give us a fucking break, it's a podcast. Anyway, there's a signpost up ahead. What? It's an audio signpost. Don't worry about it, Jesus! Anyway, your next stop is a place we call the Reality Zone. Let's all acknowledge that that was a weird cold open. Like, even for this show... Also, did he confuse the Outer Limits opening with the Twilight Zone opening? Is this a conspiracy to drive away, listeners? Would you mind actually telling all of us what the fuck you're doing this episode? Hey, cool your jets. I'm about to get to it. But first, we gotta do a little housekeeping and welcome the newbie Straniacs. New folks, thanks for weathering that opening bit, and welcome to what we hope will become a new podcast listening habit. Since you went to the trouble to find this show among the seemingly infinite number of alternative listening fare, we're assuming that you're one of those people who's always seeing weird stories from family and friends in your Facebook feed and your email inbox. We all know and love some people whose grasp on reality is a little less robust than might be ideal. But if you've ever found yourself wondering out loud, What the fuck is QAnon and why is my Nana so fired up about it? You've come to the right place. Every four fortnights, just say two months like normal people, we provide you with some sane, reality-based explanations for one of those super weird ideas. Over time, we expect to cover the whole spectrum of conspiracy nonsense, both ancient and contemporary, 
and we do this to help you understand why your cruise director, your food taster, and especially that one professional mourner who just has to make every funeral all about her. Yes, we're talking about you, Karen. You know, the key word is professional. I can dangle 50 bucks out of my car's window and line up 100 actors slash servers on a smoke break behind a shishi bistro on Rodeo Drive to show up and quote unquote cry. I paid for a professional mourner and I just expected better. That's all. Don't worry. The check will clear. But rest assured, this is definitely going to bring down your Yelp score. Anyway, we explain why all of those people believe such tawdry, unrealistic conspiracy theories, in spite of all evidence to the contrary. I'm your host, Fearful Jesuit, and I have a confession. I once dared Johnny Cash to shoot a man in Reno just to watch him watch him die. And that's only the first shocking revelation in what should prove to be a real thrill ride of an episode. However, and I have to ask you to stay with me here, this will mark the first time the paranoid strain covers a topic that isn't technically a conspiracy theory. <gasps> At least not a conspiracy per se. But don't worry, there's still plenty of conspiracy-related fun to be had, and a bunch of dumb fuck ideas to giggle at. We're just expanding the show's purview a bit, and we're hoping you'll come along for the ride. So pull up a seat by this campfire, and we'll try to explain what we're aiming to do over the next couple of shows. So, young listener, as we sit here under the dome of the night sky, bellies full, everything right with the world, we ask you, have you ever wondered how you know that any of this, me, you, the stars, the fire, the food you're even now digesting, in fact, the entire scope of what we normally consider to be reality, how do you know it's actually real? Wait, what? You know, I mean, sometimes you see things that aren't there, when you dream, or when you've had a fever. Or when you're super duper baked, my brohim. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. When they pass that duchy from the left-hand side, you totally get it. The fuck are you talking about? Are you okay? Yo, Dana, don't harsh my mail. I'm just saying. Let's say you see a blue sky. Like, how do you even know the blue you see is the same blue that I'm seeing, right? Because I can't get in your head and, like, you can't get in mine. So if our brains are wired differently, your blue might be like my green, right? And we'd never know. So we'd both be calling it blue, but we'd mean different colors, right? This is embarrassing. Do you need me to call someone? Uh, I'm cool. Apologies, but it's surprisingly hard to talk about this without sounding like the white kid in your freshman dorm who was super-duper into Rastafarianism. Let's try perhaps a more respectable angle. It occurred to us that while we absolutely stand behind the cause of supporting and defending our shared reality, and the idea that verifiable evidence should be deployed at all times against conspiracy theories and other stupid ideas, both foreign and domestic, We've thus far kind of avoided addressing head-on some of the most genuinely perplexing questions humans have ever banged their heads against. That is, while we've told you for years now why a bunch of stupid ideas don't comport with reality, we've never walked you, our beloved audience, through all the difficult and thus far unsolved problems related to pinning down what we mean by reality in the first place. And for that matter, how do we deal with consciousness, the self that interacts with and interprets that reality? It's at this point that we have to acknowledge that we're not experts in any of the stuff we're going to be talking about here. So what else is new? 
In fact, we're far from it. But we have obsessively studied the ways brilliant people are tackling these concepts for just as long as we've obsessively studied the way that the credulous have developed and fallen for ridiculous conspiracy theories. That is, as long as he can remember. And for basically the same reasons, we want to know why people come up with weird ideas. And in establishing those ideas as weird, it's incumbent on all of us who belong to, as one cynical asshole derisively put it, the reality-based community, to understand what we can and can't truly say with confidence about that reality and our role as participants and observers. See, in a sense, every conspiracy theory is an error in the believer's reality processing mechanism. Flat earthers privilege their immediate, limited personal experience of a seemingly flat horizon over the huge amount of less immediate yet far more convincing data and observations that replicable and rigorous experiments have provided us. So the world is obviously flat. You can see that with your own eyes. But less obviously, and for those who understand a deeper reality, far more convincingly, it is definitively round. Well, an oblate spheroid, but fair enough. By the way, I may be off base, but I think he may finally be making sense. Wait, did I, did I get a contact high? So we can and have debunked and ridiculed flat earth beliefs, which is super duper easy. See episode 11. That done, we close the book, acknowledge that some truly determined people can't, and we definitely stole this phrase from somewhere, be reasoned out of a position they didn't reason themselves into in the first place, and move on to the next topic. Which is great. In fact, it's our bread and butter. But you don't have to be a flat earther, a sovereign citizen, a 9-11 truther, or a QAnon nut to understand that there's something truly weird about those nebulous concepts we call reality, self, and consciousness even in their most stable and widely shared versions. In fact, cutting-edge cosmological research, philosophical exploration, and thought experiments inevitably reveal the world to be much less stable, consistent, and comprehensible than we might otherwise assume. So we're going to do our best to give you a quick... Uh, given the show's loquacious track record, let's say quick-ish. ...tour through the most important ideas and discoveries in these areas over the past couple thousand years, because honestly we can't think of a single topic that's more endlessly fascinating. It means we get to talk about some of the most significant thinkers the human race has ever produced. And then we'll see how some other yahoos have misapplied these heady investigations into the bedrock of experience to suggest truly insipid horseshit, like the Mandela Effect. Next, we'll dive into a set of ideas that frame the very functioning of the universe as a kind of conspiracy against conscious agents like us. No sinister cabal of mysterious puppet masters required. Finally, we'll profile a crazy who asks us to re-examine all of history from a completely unsupported, mystical, woo-woo perspective. Since this is a show about conspiracy theories, we invite you to think of this one as the episode about how various thinkers have approached the idea that the world itself, that all of reality, is in fact an illusion or conspiracy of some kind. A show about the strong possibility that we are doomed never to truly understand reality as it is, but also a show where we explain humankind's best ongoing efforts to get closer to that potentially unreachable goal. Oh, and did we mention that this is the first of a two-parter? In a couple months' time, we plan to focus on the career of perhaps the most visionary, and also the most utterly whacked-out modern avatar of reality questioning. A writer who devoted his short, difficult, drug-addled life to expanding the shit out of his readers' minds by exploring the questions of reality, consciousness, and the human condition as mediated by technology. And while we're at it, we'll dive deep into the question of consciousness, as well as obscure, heretical Christian sects. I know. 
but he tells me it's all going to make sense. Guess we'll find out soon. We already mentioned we're far from experts here, but we need to make an additional admission for the sake of full disclosure. Just as with our JFK show, where we tearfully acknowledged we didn't read the Warren report per se, but rather depended on secondary sources and critiques, we here similarly have to acknowledge that we're far less well-read in the primary literature of both philosophy and science than the following might lead you to believe. For those of you who are fans of Witt Stillman's precocious early film oeuvre, we find ourselves in a very similar position to Tom Townsend in Metropolitan, who, after expounding at length on important authors, admits he has never actually read them. You found Fanny Price unlikable? She sounds pretty unbearable, but I haven't read the book. What? You don't have to have read a book to have an opinion on it. I haven't read the Bible either. What Jane Austen novels have you read? None. I don't read novels. I prefer good literary criticism. That way you get both the novelist's idea as well as the critic's thinking. With fiction, I can never forget that none of it ever really happened, that it's all just made up by the author. We're just trying to keep our dilettante cards clearly displayed on the table so no one accuses us of dealing from the bottom of the deck. Anyway, holy shit do we have a lot to cover. Let's get to it, and we'll start with a quick overview of how we got here, evolutionarily speaking. According to folks who know about this kind of thing, recognizably modern humans have been loping around this rock for around 200,000 years. But of course, the evolutionary pressures and processes that led to our species started, as near as anyone can tell, about 4 billion years before that. Now, before we continue, we should take a moment to acknowledge the fact that this sort of talk is very offensive for some people. So, dear listener, if you don't accept evolution, or the scientifically determined age of the Earth, solar system, galaxy, universe, etc., we want you to know. We hear you. And you're just flat fucking wrong. Yep. Oh, and by the way, if you don't accept well-founded science backed by all available evidence and instead presume that all scientists in the relevant disciplines are covering up the genesis-confirming truth, then congratulations, you're a conspiracy theorist. See you later. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. By the by, we'll definitely be doing a creationism episode someday, but we can't resist the quick bashing whenever the opportunity arises. Anywho, the blind yet rigorously consistent processes behind the evolution of life have shaped every ancestor our species has ever had. Self-replicating molecules build gradually more complex systems and forms that allow better adaptation to the current environment, leading eventually from free-floating nucleic acids to individual cells and primitive bacteria. Periodic mutations in the genetic code, which usually result in catastrophe and death to the affected individuals, occasionally instead offer a new advantage and become dominant within a population through reproductive success, which also combines and recombines those various changes with other variations, sometimes producing still other novel, helpful features. As populations separate into geographically remote groups, they evolve based on different mutations and environmental pressures. Eventually, they can no longer interbreed with similar populations, and a new species is established. Over vast timescales, previously advantageous adaptations become disadvantages, while others are adapted to new uses. Eventually, after a number of world-shattering catastrophes, a group of furry, warm-blooded, milk-producing animals we call mammals get their time in the sun, and a group of these, who have evolved large brain-to-body ratios and opposable thumbs that help with hunting, evading danger, and manipulating tools, 
inadvertently also develop unprecedentedly complex mental functions that give them what amounts to cognitive superpowers. For example, they can mentally stimulate alternative scenarios, or even fantastic worlds that have never existed. They can, in a limited sense, kinda sorta predict the future. They are extremely cooperative, if admittedly also quite warlike. And that cooperative tendency, combined with their other advantages, gradually allows them to develop systems for passing along hard-won experience, first through speech and then through writing. Working together, they craft astonishing architectural, artistic, and technological marvels. They build magnificent cities. They destroy life-threatening diseases. They send members of their species to the goddamned moon. But here's the thing. All of these amazing achievements their big brains have made possible, they weren't part of some master plan. They're just effects that, as near as anyone can tell, simply and spontaneously arise once brains reach a certain level of complexity. And don't get us wrong. We are pleased as punched about that turn of events. Seems like podcasting without higher mental functions would be a real pain in the ass. Which is not to say that some podcasts we've heard aren't making a valiant attempt. Oh, snap, Miss Sassy. The point is, evolution didn't have human consciousness, or in fact any other end goal in mind. There wasn't some mandate to produce life that could A. Eventually wonder how it got here in the first place, and then B. Set about rigorously trying to figure out the answer to that question. Evolution wasn't, and isn't, strictly speaking, striving toward anything. It's just a description of what happens when self-replicating life meets changing environmental pressures. And that's what our big, beautiful, delicious, zombie, lust-object brains are. A response to the environmental stimuli that existed a few hundred thousand years ago on the African savanna. Bigger brains mean better bows, better aim, and better predictive mental models, which in turn means more arrows embedded in more gazelles at a greater, safer distance from the circling lions and hyenas and therefore more protein and fat in support of the development of new, even bigger brains in subsequent generations. Yes, as it turns out, given enough time, those big brains also mean more Sistine chapels, space shuttles, and playstations, and certainly many more probing questions about how big brains work in the first place. But all of that is a side effect. If we've said it once, we've said it a thousand times. We're lucky our evolved monkey senses can make heads or tails of the more complex and subtle aspects of reality in the first place. It's no wonder, then, that as we learn more about the world around us, we're constantly bumping up against new knowledge or situations that don't make any intuitive sense to those aforementioned supercharged monkey ganglia. A reflection of the fact that we find ourselves accidentally conscious in a world that doesn't, that literally can't, give a fuck whether anything makes sense to a bunch of hairless apes. Consider the fact that, for the sake of our own sanity, we're essentially wired to ignore the vast majority of the stimuli we receive from our surroundings. Take the extreme mundanity of your commute. I will almost guarantee that assuming you've been in the same job for a while, you can't remember a single notable thing that transpired over the past month as you journeyed back and forth to work. Or for some of you, even what happened after you got to work. Well, somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Is it Friday yet? It's five o'clock somewhere. Someone, please kill me. Are you working hard or hardly working? Seriously. I'm an empty shell. For God's sake, end this nightmare. Same shit, different day, am I right? But on the other hand, imagine if a person from one of the few hunter-gatherer tribes remaining on Earth were suddenly thrust into the same humdrum everyday commute experience, strapped behind the wheel of a metal dragon, confronted on all sides by rumbling, monstrous contraptions that look like nothing he's ever seen, whizzing by at unimaginable speeds, flashing lights, inexplicable noises. It would be complete sensory overload. 
The difference is your consciousness is constantly filtering out the stimuli that experience tells you are extraneous to your simple, straightforward purpose of getting to work. Okay, it's pretty obvious that we focus on a small number of important signals from our environment and filter out everything else. But that's the thing, our brains are so good at dealing with the world as we experience it on everyday terms, reducing down the whole of reality to the parts that help us feed, fuck, or flee, that we almost never experience what unfiltered reality is like. There are exceptions, of course. Specifically, some studies have indicated that hallucinogens like psilocybin and LSD, the effects of which are typically thought of as expanding the mind, brah, actually work by switching off parts of the brain quoting an article from Scientific American. In effect, psilocybin appears to inhibit brain regions that are responsible for constraining consciousness within the narrow boundaries of the normal waking state. So for our purposes, these preliminary results seem to indicate that the overwhelming auditory, visual, and even tactile hallucinations that users experience are due to their brain's normal filtering functions being suppressed. In other words, rather than throwing the brain into overdrive, it's simply removing the mental barriers that make it possible to move through the world without constant distraction. So evolutionarily, we're jerry-rigging mental capabilities that developed to ensure we would survive bootstrapping them into jobs they couldn't possibly have been designed for. Astrophysics, computer science, Zamboni driving. All the while blocking out most of what we perceive in order to keep ourselves sane. And we can do this because our brains are great at carefully focusing on the parts of reality that bear closely on the task we're trying to accomplish. But the flip side of that is, we're only ever absorbing a tiny fraction of the information that our senses are taking in at any given time. So we have a very narrow and warped view of the world but we still all apparently experience the same reality. And based on that experience, humans have spent thousands of years doing their best to figure out what exactly it all means. We call the activity these humans are engaged in philosophy. And it's the next step in our reality show tour. As might be expected for a show dealing with conspiracy theories, and therefore with the ways that humans comprehend and verify reality, we have oftentimes touched on philosophical topics. But for this episode's focus, we're going to have to delve more deeply into the origins of our species' inquiry into our very human condition. And at least for the tradition of Western philosophy, that means talking about Socrates and Plato. If and you haven't already heard, Socrates is widely considered one of the most important thinkers in all of history, and the father of Greek philosophy. A term that means the love of wisdom. Born in Athens around 470 BC, he spent his time wandering around his city-state, asking impertinent questions and being kind of a dick to anyone he thought was a little too confident about anything. Literally anything. Anything at all. Famously, he was proclaimed by the Oracle at Delphi, who, as you may recall from our QAnon episode, was a major religious figure of the time who was thought to channel prophecies from the gods. More accurately, one of a group of women who exposed themselves to toxic and hallucinogenic vapors emanating from a natural cavern and then declaimed inscrutable and usually unverifiable pronouncements about the future of various important Greeks of the period. So the oracle declared Socrates to be the wisest of men, 
Socrates was confused at this pronouncement as he was vocal about the fact that the only thing he knew was that he knew nothing. But then, as the story goes, after talking with other reputedly wise figures of his period, he came to understand that in fact the prophecy was true, if only insofar as Socrates was wise enough to know that he knew nothing, whereas those he had spoken to had the unjustified belief that they knew plenty. Socrates was an amazing dude. He was eventually tried and convicted of corrupting the morals of the youth of Athens because he told them to question received wisdom from their elders, including the worship of the gods. And instead of throwing himself on the mercy of the court, he essentially used his speech in his own defense to accuse everyone who held his fate in their hands of intellectual and moral cowardice and tell them that instead of executing him, they should support him at public expense for the rest of his life. When convicted and sentenced to death, instead of just hopping a boat to a friendlier city-state, he drank poison as prescribed, reasoning that no one knew whether death was actually bad or good, so it was unreasonable for him to go to any real lengths to avoid it. The absurdity and tragedy of all this is nicely encapsulated by Nigel Warburton in his A Little History of Philosophy. About 2,400 years ago, a man was put to death in Athens for asking too many questions. Anyway, we like to consider Socrates the secular patron saint of the strain. We aspire to ask impertinent questions, though hopefully with fewer hemlock-related consequences. Among his other quirks, Socrates wasn't in favor of writing down his ideas. He thought that writing led to laziness in thinking, argument, and memory. But thankfully, his student Plato had no such compunctions, and wrote extensively after his master's death, recording Socrates' key insights in a style that blended the great man's ideas with Plato's own through imagined dialogues in which his deceased mentor engaged in question-and-answer arguments with other Athenian luminaries on various important topics. Spoiler, Socrates always wins these arguments, which, to be fair, probably was a reflection of how things actually went down. Socrates was crazy smart. One of the most important ideas for our understanding of reality comes from a dialogue called The Republic, desultorily skimmed for essay tests by political science students since time immemorial. One section lays out unquestionably the most famous thought experiment in all of Western philosophy, the allegory of the cave. If you already know it, feel free to skip a minute or two while we explain to the rest of the class. Plato, through the mouth of Socrates, sets the scene. Imagine this. People live under the earth in a cave-like dwelling. People have been in this dwelling since childhood, shackled by the legs and neck. Thus they stay in one place, so there is only one thing for them to look at whatever they encounter in front of their faces. But because they're shackled, they are unable to turn their heads around. A fire is behind them, and behind their backs there runs a walkway at a certain height. Imagine that a low wall has been built, the length of the walkway, like a low curtain that the puppeteers have put up, over which they show their puppets, the images carried before the fire. So now, imagine that, all along this low wall, people are carrying all sorts of things that reach higher up than the wall, statues and other carvings of stone or wood, and many other artifacts that people have made. As you would expect, people are talking to each other as they walk along, and some are silent. Pretty evocative, right? And obviously, this is Plato's analogy for how we live our lives. Like the inhabitants of this cave, we not only don't see the reality that presumably exists outside of the cave, we don't even see the actual puppets or representations of those objects. We see the shadows of the puppets that represent that reality. And what we hear is the echo of people doing their impressions of the real sounds that these things would make. And worse, we're shackled, only able to see this pantomime, and so we take it as our reality. Now, of course, there's more to this allegory, 
Eventually someone is released, forced to turn around, first sees the bizarre puppet show, and then eventually he emerges into the bright light of the sun, and the non-puppet, non-shadow objects of the real world. He resists, but eventually sees everything in all of its three-dimensional glory. But when he returns to tell his compatriots all about what he's seen, that things are so different from what they experienced it's almost impossible to describe, they find him rambling and incoherent and resolve to punish anyone who tries to venture out of the cave and disseminate such nonsense in the future. Clearly, this is Plato's shot at the powers that be over their judicial murder of his mentor and hero, Socrates. The Steve McQueen motorcycling over the prison wall in this analogy is the philosopher, and what he experiences outside the cave is a deeper, perfect reality that is inaccessible to all but those who study philosophy, and to them only occasionally. We're not going into it, but suffice it to say that Plato believed that there existed an ideal version of everything. Subway tokens, cats, Toyota Corollas, Jamila Jamil, of which the versions in this world are merely copies of copies. The shadows on the cave wall. Actually, we're pretty sure this world's Jamila Jamil is the platonic ideal version. But we digress. <laughs> 